Welcome to the Michigan Constitution Podcast, where the citizens of the Mitten State seek the pleasant peninsula between their state and federal identities through a deeper understanding of how Michigan's Constitution and its defining case law affects their everyday lives. Your host, Tony Snyder, is a licensed Michigan attorney with more than a decade of experience in private and government practice. Through this podcast, you'll better understand the unique characteristics of Michigan's supreme law and probably learn a few fun facts about federalism, too. And now, Here's Tony. Welcome back to the 23rd installment of the Michigan Constitution podcast. This time, I want to talk about Article 1, Section 10 of the Michigan Constitution. Article 1, Section 10 reads as follows. No bill of attainder, ex post facto law, or law impairing the obligation of a contract shall be enacted. Now, this particular section is technically three topics in one. It covers bills of attainder, ex post facto laws, and laws which infringe on contracts. I'm going to break these three subjects apart and put them into their own section of podcasts, so today's subject will cover simply bills of attainder. Here's what you need to know about bills of attainder. A legislative act that determines guilt and inflicts punishment on an identifiable group of individuals without the protections of a judicial trial is a bill of attainder. Historical perspective on bills of attainder. Historically, these bills of attainder were used in England during times of rebellion or political upheaval. Such bills of attainder commonly imposed penalties including death, imprisonment, banishment, or the punitive confiscation of property by the sovereign against persons considered disloyal to the crown. In more modern applications, the prescriptions against bills of attainder prohibits such sanctions as legislation barring individuals or groups from participation in specific types of employment or vocation. The best part and worst part about the cases I'll be covering in this podcast is that literally none of the cases ever found the law in question to be a bill of attainder. And remember, a bill of attainder is... A legislative act that determines guilt and inflicts punishment on an identifiable group of individuals without the protections of a judicial trial is a bill of attainder. So what this means is that none of the laws in question were deemed to be criminal in nature with no judicial review. All the questions at hand do have a judicial review component, which is why None of the plaintiffs in the following lawsuit won their arguments alleging the legislature passed a law making something illegal and prohibiting the plaintiff from a trial. Okay, what does this all mean? Because I think real-life examples will help to illustrate what I'm talking about. But first, your spoonful of legalese. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. The purpose of this podcast is merely to teach you what's in the Michigan Constitution. Each podcast will review a different article section, we'll talk about what it means, and we'll review the Michigan case law, which helps us to better understand the effects of those constitutional provisions. Here's what this podcast is not. It is not legal advice. It is not legal expertise. Although I am a licensed attorney in the state of Michigan, I make no warranties as to the veracity of the statements I make within this podcast. First of all, I don't practice constitutional law, I practice administrative law. Second, the laws change on a day-to-day basis, as does case law. What might be applicable the day I make a statement about the Michigan Constitution could very well be outdated the day I post this podcast. If you think you're going to become a Michigan Constitutional Scholar because of my podcast, you're sadly mistaken. You'd do better with a Ouija board and a Magic 8-Ball. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. If you need Michigan legal advice, you would be well served to contact the State Bar of Michigan and ask for their lawyer referral service program for a referral to an attorney who specializes in your legal matter. First case, City of Detroit versus Division 26 of Amalgamated Association of Street, Electric Railway, and Motor Coach Employees of America, This is a Michigan Supreme Court case from 1952. And if the case name sounds familiar, it should. We discussed it in the last podcast when reviewing involuntary servitude. Here, the workers were alleging their inability to strike was akin to a bill of attainder. Let me refresh your memory on the facts. For this case, employees of the Street, Electric Railway, and Motor Coach Union 
demanded a pay increase after their contract with the city of Detroit expired. After an extended period of negotiation time, on April 17, 1951, the union took a vote of its membership on two questions. Number one, were the members in favor of a strike? And number two, were they in favor of arbitration? The vote resulted overwhelmingly in favor of the first question, specifically, to strike. Therefore, four days later, the employees of the Street, Electric Railway, and Motor Coach went on strike and it lasted for the next two months. It is noted in the court opinion that the strike resulted in complete cessation of the Detroit Public Transportation Service, particularly the Street Railway Department. On June 18, 1951, a trial court judge ordered the employees back to work, largely in part to the problems it caused to the innocent residents of Detroit trying to get to and from work but could not afford a car for their personal transportation. At issue is the Public Employee Act, which, as the name implies, pertains to public employees of local and state government. Because the strikers working for Detroit's street railway system are public employees, the act applies to them. The act is designed as a matter of public policy to prevent strikes by public employees. The act contains a provision which makes clear an employee on strike must abandon and terminate his employment while also limiting the public employer's ability to rehire a striking employee. The act also provides for substitution mediation in place of ordinary strike procedure and that either party may obtain mediation. The value in mediation over striking is that it gives both sides an opportunity to come to a resolution without any major inconvenience to the innocent citizens of Detroit. Now, I suspect this was truly a throw-the-stuff-at-the-wall-and-see-what-sticks mentality by the union workers. I say this because the Michigan Supreme Court only dedicates three paragraphs to the bills of attainder conflict out of a lengthy 10-page, double-column-per-page court opinion. They remind us that a bill of attainder occurs when the Michigan legislature creates an act which inflicts punishment without a judicial trial. Here in our case, the Supremes note this act may indeed provide for certain limitations and regulations, but it inflicts no punishment. It does not provide for fines or imprisonment, nor does it deprive a public employee of any vested right. The court goes on to say they know of no constitutional provision which gives an individual the right to be employed by the government, nor is there any constitutional right to maintain the right to work for the government once you become employed. Therefore, the court reasoned, if there is no constitutional right to obtaining or maintaining government employment, then there is no constitutional inhibition of reasonable restrictions or limitations being applied to that job. Such restrictions or limitations could not be held to be in the nature of what bills of attainder are designed to prevent. All right, let me see if I can explain this with a little less lawyer speak, all right? Nowhere in the Michigan Constitution does it say that you have a constitutional right to obtain and or maintain a job that you might hold within Michigan government. And remember here, these are governmental employees of the city of Detroit who are being prevented from striking from their job. So they're governmental employees who, according to the Michigan Supreme Court, have no constitutional right to have the job that they hold. And they have no constitutional right to keep the job they hold once hired. So far, no constitutional right for your employment, City of Detroit workers. And if there's no constitutional right to getting and maintaining that job, then there is no violation of the Michigan Constitution when the Michigan legislature places some limitations on that job. Here, in our case that we're talking about, the limitation placed on the jobs of governmental workers is you can't strike. And the reason this is a reasonable limitation on what a governmental worker can or can't do 
is because the strike of a governmental worker means things for the citizens of the government aren't being provided. As was in the case here, when those streetcar workers and bus drivers went on strike, that prevented citizens from getting from point A to point B, you know, mainly from their home to work and then back home again. As we know from our previous discussion on this case, the Michigan Supreme Court viewed it as unfair to the innocent citizens of Detroit to be the folks to suffer the consequences of a striking union workforce. The citizens merely wanted to get to work. And because the Michigan legislature passed a law which said persons who work for the government, any government, can't strike, this was done to ensure governmental services would continue to be provided to the citizens. Remember, a bill of attainder is a legislative act which inflicts punishment without a trial. There is no punishment here. There was a limitation on what actions the public employees could do when faced with no agreed-upon contract, but losing a job is not considered punishment in a criminal sense. All right, our next case of People versus Rafalco is a Michigan Court of Appeals case from 1970, and it again pertains to a failed allegation of bills of attainder. But at least this time, we are in the criminal allegation realm, which is where these types of allegations belong. Unfortunately for Mr. Rafalco, his attempts fail. So what's the fact pattern? Mr. Rafalco was employed as a bartender by Walter Rogers at Walter's Bar in the city of Hamtramck. One night when bartender Rafalco was working, he helped himself to the register's till. Unfortunately for our bartender, the owner, Walter Rogers, he realized there wasn't enough cash in the register like there should have been and confronted Rafalco about the missing money. Rafalco admitted that he indeed took the money and proceeded to gamble it all away at a local racetrack. Now, from the best the court opinion describes, it appears that bartender Rafalco promised to make restitution later the next day so as to avoid the owner from going to the police. And Walter agreed to not get the police involved if Mr. Rafalco paid the money back later that next day. Well, when later that next day came and went and Rafalco never repaid the money, the owner fired the bartender and went to the police for embezzling over $219, which is just over $1,600 in today's money. He subsequently, uh, Mr. Rafalco that is, pled guilty and was ordered to repay the $219 while on probation. One of the many unsuccessful arguments that Mr. Rafalco made on appeal to the Michigan Court of Appeals was that the embezzlement statute falls within the confines of a bill of attainder. Now, I don't totally understand where the defense was going with their legal theory, but here's what the defense believed. Because a bill of attainder is a legislative act, directed against a designed or designated person, and because it pronounce the defendant guilty of an alleged crime without a trial, this is somehow the epitome of a bill of attainder and, and should not be considered constitutional. Well, to be clear, here's what the embezzlement statute looks like. Any person who, as the employee of another, or as the custodian of the property of another, who shall fraudulently dispose of or convert to his own use or take or secrete with intent to convert to his own use, without the consent of his principal, any money or other personal property of his principal, which shall have come into his possession, or shall be under his charge or control by virtue of his being such an employee or custodian, as aforesaid, shall be guilty of the crime of embezzlement. Upon conviction thereof, if the money or personal property so embezzled be of the value of more than $100, such person shall be guilty of a felony, punishable by imprisonment in the state prison, 
not more than 10 years or by a fine not exceeding $5,000. In any prosecution under this section, the failure, neglect, or refusal of such employee or custodian to pay, deliver, or refund to his principal such money or property entrusted to his care upon demand shall be prima facie proof of intent to embezzle. And the Court of Appeal rightly says the defendant's argument is absolutely without merit. They say the defendant is wrong because Mr. Rafalco did have a trial and was found guilty. The embezzlement statute can't be a bill of attainder because the alleged culprit is given a trial by a court to prove guilt or innocence. When a true bill of attainder is passed by a legislature, it prevents a defendant from a trial to determine guilt or innocence. This was a crazy, crazy argument for the attorney to make, and for obvious reasons, it was rejected by the courts. Okay, our next case, People versus Peterson, a Michigan Court of Appeals case from 1975, has a little bit of a nutty aspect case to it. Not because of the arguments made, but because of the Court of Appeals judges and their supplied opinions. As is usually the case, a Court of Appeals case is heard by the three judges, and two out of the three judges constitutes a majority opinion, but it's not uncommon for an opinion to be 3-0, meaning all three judges are on the same page and agree with the case outcome. But here in this case, it's a two-to-one decision, sort of. All three judges agreed on 10 out of the 11 decisions that their court had to make a decision about. But one judge who happened to agree with 10 out of the 11 decisions also happened to not agree on an 11th decision, and that one decision was in relation to our bill of attainder matter. So what could have been, you know, a roughly 60, 90 second case review is now going to be a bit drawn out. And to be clear, I'm not going into the 10 issues where all three judges agreed together regarding the outcome. I'm going to focus solely on the one matter which dealt with bills of attainder by talking to you about what the majority, the two judges, decided upon, but also then to go into the dissent of the other one-off judge and what he wrote as it related to the bill of attainder. The fact pattern on this case is extremely brief. Apparently, defendant Ms. Peterson, she stole some stuff out of a car and she was sentenced to 180 days of jail. 160 days of those 180 she had to serve immediately in jail, and then the other 20 days would be served whenever she was told she had to serve them. She got no credit for the 14 days of jail time that she had served while, you know, awaiting the case to be addressed, but she was also placed on five years of probation. It was while on probation where our case gets interesting because one of the conditions of probation was that Ms. Peterson was subject to a warrantless search and seizure of her person and her surroundings. In particular, here's what the probation provision entailed. That the person of probationer and any and all premises and vehicles owned or occupied by said probationer shall be open to search at any and all times by the probation officer and by any law enforcement officers without a search warrant, therefore. And the Michigan Court of Appeals struck down that provision. But they were very clear. They weren't striking down this probation provision because they thought it was a bill of attainder. They did not believe that. Even if it was an erroneous requirement to place on a probationer like Ms. Peterson, it did not constitute a penalty without a judicial trial. Instead, they believed it was a violation of other constitutional rights, like a violation of unreasonable search and seizure. The Mission Court of Appeals even notes a probationer is no less deprived of all constitutional guarantees than the person incarcerated in jail or prison. Or, you know, maybe said another way, we provide more protections against unreasonable searches and seizures to inmates 
than we do to probationers if we were to allow and let probation agents conduct these warrantless searches. That viewpoint is based off from a Michigan Supreme Court case. In that case, which was somewhat similar to our fact pattern here, the Supreme Court held, and I'm going to paraphrase here, it could not be seriously argued that the search and seizure made by an officer without the defendant's consent or without a search warrant would ever have been tried if the defendant were not in jail, but instead were, you know, in his or her own car. And a defendant is not stripped of his civil rights or other constitutional safeguards merely because he or she may be serving time in jail. It would be a dangerous rule of law, as well as a serious invitation to circumvent constitutional guarantees against unreasonable searches and seizures if the citizen in jail could be stripped of all their civil liberties. Now, that's a very fancy way of saying a person in jail has just the same rights as a person not in jail, at least as it comes to unreasonable or warrantless searches and seizures. Therefore, in our case, the majority of judges on this Court of Appeals panel said they're okay if this means a change to rights provided to probationers. They believed it better to give probationers more rights than to edge towards a police state, which these judges believed could slowly happen. And these judges even admit in their opinion, there are lots of other states which have been challenged regarding searches and seizures of probationers, and those states have upheld allowing these types of warrantless searches against a probationer. But these two judges said in their majority opinion, they believe requiring a probationer to waive their protection from unreasonable searches and seizures was, quote, so repugnant to the whole spirit of the Bill of Rights as to make it alien to the essence of our form of government, end quote. These two judges ended their opinion by saying they understand there are certain constitutional rights probationers waive in order to be granted probation versus, say, spending time in jail. The right to a trial, for example, is a constitutional right. You do have the right to waive. If a defendant receives a plea deal which the defendant finds appropriate, well, he or she can accept that plea offer, waive the right to a trial, and just plead guilty. And if probation is an option on the table, it's not uncommon for a defendant to take the plea deal for a lesser charge, get the probation, and never serve a day of jail time. The defendant has all of those rights, but these judges in this case say that as part of probation, it is a step too far to require a probationer to waive the right to a search and seizure by officers with no questions asked. These judges thought a probationer's signing of acceptance to a no-questions-asked search and seizure against the defendant was coercion by the legal system, and for that reason, struck down the no-questions-asked search and seizure provision of probation. But again, this court ruled bills of attainder are not implicated. Now, the one-off judge of this particular panel of three, as you'll remember, agreed with the other two judges on 10 out of 11 decisions about this case. However, he did not agree with the judges on this no-questions-asked search-and-seizure provision of probation. To the contrary, this judge said there's absolutely nothing wrong with searching a probationer for any number of reasons. Well, let's talk about them. First, the probationer could have accepted jail or prison time instead of accepting probation. And if the defendant takes the jail or prison time, well, then the defendant will get those search and seizure protections while incarcerated. But probation is a privilege, which comes with strings attached to that privilege. And if you want the privilege, you have to accept some of those attached strings. Second, the judge points out Many other states do just this. They require their probationers be subject to the no-questions-asked searches and seizures. The judge went so far as to say he couldn't find any instances 
where states do protect the probationers from a no-questions-asked policy. Thus, this decision makes Michigan an outlier. Thirdly, the judge said comparing a free person versus a probationer versus an incarcerated person is like comparing apples to oranges to grapes. You have some folks who haven't violated any law, so they're going to get the most protection. Then you have incarcerated people who get the least freedom. Then you've got these probationers who are right in between who get some freedoms, you know, certainly more than prisoners, but not as many prisoners as those who have never been, you know, in the criminal justice system because they've never committed any sort of crime. This judge saw no problem with treating these three unique classifications of people, meaning free people, probationers, incarcerated people, in three different methods. Fourthly, the judge said folks who are under the watch of a probation agent certainly understand they've less privacy than a person never in the criminal system. That defendants on probation are going to have some reasonable intrusions to ensure that the defendant is staying on that proverbial straight and narrow. In conclusion, this one-off judge of the three panels, he argued probation requires supervision and guidance to avoid the repetition of past mistakes. To be effective, the supervision cannot be restricted by the limitations on governmental scrutiny which the Constitution guarantees to law-abiding citizens. For all the aforementioned reasons, the judge would have granted the authority to continue conducting warrantless searches on probationers. So what do you think, listeners? Do probationers deserve the same sort of warrantless search and seizure protection as granted to either a law-abiding law citizen or to an incarcerated person? Should everyone be treated the same across the board? Or does a probationer give up certain rights and protections while out on probation, which is considered to be a privilege? Do they give up some constitutional protections for their benefit from no jail or no prison time? All right, I've got two more cases to review. What I like about these last two cases is they finally do a bit of a deeper dive into the notion of bills of attainer. So I think you'll find them to be even more interesting than just the ones we've been talking about already. And our first one here is Matulowitz versus Governor of Michigan. This was a Michigan Court of Appeals case from 1989. The cause of this lawsuit was because the Michigan legislature passed a bill signed by the governor, which eliminated the position held by Mr. Matulowitz, which was that of a hearings referee within the workers' compensation system. So, very briefly, uh, when a person is injured on the job, if the employer disputes whether they should pay for their employee's workers' compensation claim, that dispute can be brought to a uh, hearings referee within the workers' compensation system, and that's all provided for under the Michigan Workers' uh, Disability Compensation Act. Now, this hearings officer position is a governmental job working for the state of Michigan, and apparently, pursuant to this new law, it eliminated the hearing referee positions in favor of a board of magistrates, and that would wind up being an autonomous entity composed of 30 members appointed by the governor. Now, Mr. Matulowitz alleged that the elimination of his civil service position was unconstitutional. The plaintiff claimed that the legislature acted in bad faith by engaging in overly political and indiscriminatory actions. Matulowitz believed that it was unconstitutional to take a non-partisan civil servant position and convert it into a political appointee position. Since these new board of magistrate members were to be selected by the governor versus, you know, hired based on, say, merit, Matulowitz believed this was unconstitutional. 
the governor, Governor Blanchard, thus filed an executive message with the Michigan Supreme Court requesting a question of public law to the Michigan Supreme Court for immediate consideration. And we've talked about this in the past. Our Michigan Constitution gives the Michigan Supreme Court the authority to give an opinion on the constitutionality of a law, although also remember, ultimately at the end of the day, there is no binding precedential value to the opinion given by the Michigan Supreme Court. It's just, it's just that. It's just an opinion. But here, the governor was asking the Michigan Supremes to give their opinion on whether the justices thought this law to be unconstitutional as alleged. The Supremes sort of sidestepped the question because they directed a local court in Ingham County, which, by the way, is the county where the governor's office, the Capitol building, and the Michigan Supreme Court are all located. And the local judge was directed to hold a trial and issue a final judgment in the matter. Well, pursuant to the Michigan Supreme Court order, the local Ingham County judge held the trial and found that the act was indeed unconstitutional and that the legislature couldn't create this politically appointed board of magistrates. Woof. The state of Michigan did not like that ruling, and the Michigan Supreme Court apparently didn't either, because... The Michigan Supreme Court grabbed the case, prevented it from being appealed to the Michigan Court of Appeals, and instead leapfrogs the case over the Court of Appeals directly to them, the justices of the Michigan Supreme Court. They overruled the local judge and determined that the Board of Magistrates is a constitutionally allowable creation by the Michigan legislature. Therefore, the Michigan Supreme Court sends the case back to the local judge to deal with the case as they, the Michigan Supremes, just decided. Now, on a side note, if I were the local judge, to say I'd be honked off would be a major understatement. Because let's take a step back and evaluate what just happened. The Michigan Supreme Court was asked by the Michigan governor to make a decision on whether this new law was constitutional or not. The Michigan Supremes go, no, we're going to take a hard pass on determining the constitutionality of this law. Let's make a local circuit court judge go through the entire dog and pony show of holding a trial, including discovery and witness testimony, you know, along with the arguments by the attorneys for and against the constitutionality of this law. But then when the judge does all that and rules that the law is unconstitutional, The Michigan Supreme Court steps back in, overrules the judge telling him he's wrong in his conclusion, and then sends a case back to the original judge to enforce the decision they just made, which was to overrule his decision. What a kick in the pants. It's like the Supremes knew how they wanted the constitutional question to be answered, but they didn't want to have to make the decision themselves. So instead, they sent it to the local judge, hoping he would find it constitutional. But when he didn't, the Michigan Supremes step back in, overrule him, and tell him he has to address the case in conformity to the decision they just made. Anyway, I digress. The local judge does as he's told to do. He dismisses almost every single complaint brought forth by Matulowicz because of the overruled decision made by the Michigan Supreme Court. However, one of the matters the circuit court judge had to review was the notion that the elimination of the hearing referees was an unconstitutional bill of attainder. The circuit court ruled this action by the legislature was indeed a bill of attainder. So, once again, Mr. Matulowicz wins in the circuit court. No surprise, the state of Michigan appealed this decision and it went before the Michigan Court of Appeals for review. Now, time outside note real quick, I find it interesting that this time the Michigan Supreme Court did not leapfrog the Court of Appeals, but instead allowed the Court of Appeals to decide the matter. So, let's talk about why the Court of Appeals did not believe this to be a bill of attainder. And again, to be clear, Mr. Matulowicz once again lost on appeal, but this time 
he lost, you know, in front of the Court of Appeals. The Michigan Court of Appeals starts off their reasoning by reiterating a bill of attainder occurs when a legislative act applies to either a named defendant or to an easily ascertainable member of a group so as to punish them without a judicial trial. At the heart of any bill of attainder are two key factors, punishment and no trial. But whether a legislative action amounts to punishment depends upon the circumstances and the causes of the deprivation. For that reason, the Michigan Court of Appeals created a three-element test to determine whether a statute inflicts a forbidden punishment. They are as follows. 1. Whether the challenge statute falls within the historical meaning of legislative punishment. 2. Whether the statute, viewed in terms of the type and severity of burdens imposed, reasonably can be said to further non-punitive legislative purposes. And 3. Whether the legislative record evinces a congressional intent to punish. The Michigan Court of Appeals said, Mr. Matulowicz's argument fails across the board. First, Mr. Matulowicz was not punished within the meaning of our Constitution. This new law does not remove Mr. Matulowicz from the civil service system. It removes him from the specific job in which he currently holds. So to be clear, he didn't become unemployed at all under this new law. He still has a job with the state of Michigan as a governmental employee within the civil service system. But the Michigan Court of Appeals notes Mr. Matulowicz no longer has that specific job as a hearings referee. Second, the Michigan Court of Appeals did not believe that the legislature's action resulted in punitive legislative purposes. They believed the Michigan legislature sought to reduce the delay in time it took to conclude these worker compensation claims. And because the Michigan legislature has an interest in ensuring that employees' worker comp claims are decided in a timely manner, well then, changing up how the hearings are conducted would certainly be well within the right of the legislature to tweak the act as needed. Lastly, the Court of Appeals looked at the history of the legislation and essentially reviewed the why questions and answers that were put on the record to see if the motivation uh, behind these changes had any ill will. The Court of Appeals can review transcripts such as committee hearings and floor debates. And when they did, the Court of Appeals was able to learn the intent behind the changes which were being proposed, and they did not find any reason to believe that there was any sort of ill will or punishment intent against, say, Mr. Matulowicz or anybody else that was a hearings referee. For those reasons, the Michigan Court of Appeals found no basis for which Matulowicz could successfully contend the Michigan legislature's action was a bill of attainder. Our last case, it's a really interesting case. It's called In Re McAvoy. It was a Michigan Court of Appeals case from 2005. And we're dealing with a minor child who was approximately 15 years old at the time of his crime. It was in the early mornings of April 8th, 2002. 15-year-old Sean McAvoy broke into his Howell High School building and proceeded to vandalize the hell out of it. Amongst the biggest amounts of damage that he caused came from the fire he set, which he set approximately five fires throughout the building, but it wasn't the fires per se as much as it was the automatic sprinklers which ran for several hours before the police and fire were notified and arrived to reset the sprinkler system. It was the water damage which did most of the, wait for it, $700,000 of damage to the school. And that's just over a million dollars in today's money. Sean was subsequently arrested and admitted to starting the fires. He ultimately pled guilty to arson of a non-dwelling building, as well as malicious destruction of personal property. Following the fire, the school district hired contractors to clean up, refurbish, and replace damaged equipment, furniture, and other related items destroyed by the water. At the end of the day, 
the insurance company for Howell High School spent over $744,000 in claims to compensate the school district for the costs related to the fire and water damage caused by minor Sean McAvoy. In return, the insurance company filed a petition with the court asking for restitution from Sean and his parents for reimbursement of approximately $715,000, the lower amount being the difference paid to them by the school and their uh, $30,000 deductible. Here's the law in which the insurance company relied upon. If the court determines that the juvenile is or will be unable to pay all of the restitution ordered, after notice to the juvenile's parent and an opportunity for the parent to be heard, the court may order the parent or parents having supervisory responsibility for the juvenile at the time of the acts upon which an order of restitution is based to pay any portion of the restitution ordered that is outstanding. An order under this subsection does not relieve the juvenile of his or her obligation to pay restitution, but the amount owed by the juvenile shall be offset by any amount paid by his parent. As you can imagine, the parents argue this provision, by imposing an unlimited amount of money in restitution without a showing of fault on the part of the parents, is an unconstitutional deprivation of the parents' due process and acts as a bill of attainder. Hogwash, said the Michigan Court of Appeals. The Court of Appeals first note that there is a rational basis standard of review which governs a court's review of legitimate social and economic legislation like the one that we're dealing with. The Court of Appeals goes on to say that this type of legislation, which addresses the burdens and benefits of economic life, have both a presumption of being constitutional, but also put the burden on the party complaining of a due process violation. So, essentially, the parents are going to have to convince the court that the legislature acted in some sort of arbitrary and capricious manner for them to be able to win their case. The parents are basing this due process violation claim on the requirement to pay restitution to the acts as it relates to a minor child. But the Michigan Court of Appeals held that, well, yeah, we are going to make you responsible for the actions of your kid. You know, said another way, Parents are to be responsible for raising a child who is a productive member of society, and a parent can't let a kid run wild and then try to avoid responsibility to society for the wrongs committed by their child. To the contrary, parents have an obligation to society that their children are raised well and that are not a detriment to society. The court looked at this language and finds that there is a provision within the law which states that restitution may only be imposed to the extent of the parent's financial resources. And the statute mandates that a court must cancel all or part of a parent's obligation if payment of the amount will impose an obvious and clear hardship on the parent. Now, the court reasoned that the Michigan legislature has clearly sought to link liability with responsibility in a reasonable but purposeful manner, rather than just, you know, burdening society in general or the victim specifically of the costs for that juvenile's illegal act. The statute reasonably imposes liability on the parents responsible for supervising the child. In our case here, the court limited the parent's liability to the available insurance proceeds to be paid by the parent's homeowner insurance. So, said another way, well, the trial court allowed the school district's insurance company to sue the parent's homeowner insurance company for restitution. And whatever amount that the school district's insurance company can get from uh, the parent's homeowner insurance company is the only amount the parents will have to pay. So really, in a sense, the parents will pay nothing out of pocket. I mean, yeah, their monthly insurance premiums are going to skyrocket, so they will pay more, but at no time do the parents have to write out a check to the school district or its insurance company. Now, I'm not sure that that really addresses the intent of the legislation, but regardless, 
the Michigan Court of Appeals held that the parents did not meet their burden of establishing that there was no legitimate public purpose for being on the hook for their kids' vandalism, and therefore they lost on their due process argument. The guarantee of due process demands only that the law shall not be unreasonable, shall not be arbitrary or capricious, and that the decisions selected shall have a real and substantial relation to the object sought to be attained. With a little less lawyer speak, whatever action the government puts into place can't be unreasonable. To the contrary, the government's actions should have a real tie to the direct goal looking to be achieved. And the court waxed poetic when they said, The existence of the parent-child relationship provides a rational basis for imposing liability and is a reasonable means to accomplish the purposes of compensation and deterrence. The United States Supreme Court has recognized that parents have an important guiding role to play in the upbringing of their children. The legislature could have reasonably believed that subjecting parents to vicarious liability for their children's willful and malicious acts of vandalism would encourage parents to exercise their guiding role in the upbringing of their children. Through better parental supervision and guidance, the legislator hoped to deter delinquent conduct. Our concern is not whether that hope has been or will be fulfilled, but whether there is any rational basis for it. Though we acknowledge the difficulties of being a parent, we cannot say that there is no rational basis for the statute. Now, let's move into the bills of attainder, the real reason why we're here. The parents argued that being responsible for their kids' bad behavior punishes them, the parents, simply based upon their status as being parents of a delinquent child. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of the point of the legislation, said the Michigan Court of Appeals. The judges reiterated, it is only a bill of attainder when a legislative act determines guilt and inflicts punishment on an identifiable group of individuals without the protection of a judicial trial. And remember, Historically, these bills of attainder were used in England during times of rebellion or political upheaval. Such bills of attainder commonly imposed penalties including death, imprisonment, banishment, or the punitive confiscation of property by the sovereign against persons considered disloyal to the crown. In more modern applications, the prescriptions against bills of attainder prohibits such sanctions as legislation barring individuals or groups from participation in specific types of employment or vocation. For the parents' arguments to be correct, it's going to have to require that the court order restitution be validly characterized as punishment in a constitutional sense. A statutory enactment that imposes deprivation or disabilities that are disproportionately severe and inappropriate to non-punitive ends is immediately constitutionally suspect. However, the mere fact that harm is inflicted by the government does not make it punishment. There could be other reasons besides punishment for a deprivation. Now, in this instance, the deprivation would be the money coming out of the parent's bank account. So, this Court of Appeals sets up a really nice three-pronged test to determine whether a statute inflicts a forbidden punishment, and they are as follows. 1. Whether the challenge statute falls within the historical meaning of legislative punishment. 2. Whether the statute, viewed in terms of the type and severity of burdens imposed, reasonably furthers non-punitive legislative purposes. And 3. Whether the legislative record evinces a congressional intent to punish. The funny thing is, the Court of Appeals sets up this three-pronged test and then immediately says the parents can't satisfy any of the prongs. First, the Court of Appeals rules that restitution is not punishment in the sense of a constitutional punishment. That would be things like, you know, say, death or incarceration and the like. But more so, the idea of restitution isn't to punish the juvenile or his parents. The point of restitution is to make the victim whole again, to put the victim back in the same position they were in before the vandalism occurred. So the legislature is not looking to punish the parents. The legislature is looking to put the victim back in the place they were at before the damage occurred. Sure, the restitution might subsequently cause financial pain to the parents, but it's not what a bill of attainder is looking to avoid. 
Second, the court points out the intent of the act authorizes a court to hold a parent secondarily accountable for restitution. So said another way, if the juvenile can pay something toward the victim's restitution, that's the first source of money. You know, maybe the kid's been saving up his paper route money for the last five years, or he's been saving his birthday and Christmas money so that he can buy a car once he turns 16. You get the point. If the kid has a rich grandma who left him money for college, the kid may have to dip into that money as a source for his funds first before the parents are required to step in and pay any remaining restitution. Finally, the statute requires a court to minimize the financial obligations of the parents if they can't afford the restitution. There are provisions within the act which act to temper the potentially hard ramifications of the statute and requires a court to cancel some or all of the restitution if it's going to result in a clear hardship for the parents. In our case, the judge allowed for the parents' homeowner insurance company to pay the school district's insurance company. Therefore, at no time were the parents' personal assets, like, say, a house or stocks and bonds or a 401k retirement account, ever in jeopardy. Now, again, I don't really know how I feel about that, but regardless, because there were so many outs for the parents to not be on the hook for their kids' juvenile delinquency, the Michigan Court of Appeals ruled that this obligation by the parents to pay restitution for their kids' bad behavior was not a bill of attainder. That's going to do it for episode 23 of the Michigan Constitution Podcast. Please reach out to me. I'm on Twitter at Tony Snyder. The Michigan Constitution Podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not offer legal advice or create an attorney-client relationship. This podcast is hosted by Tony Snyder. For more information, visit TonySnyder.com, send an email to podcast at TonySnyder.com, or follow Tony on Twitter at Tony Snyder. Catch new episodes on the 1st and 15th of each month. Thanks for listening.